From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Crime is rising in Colorado. We talk with the head of corrections about how he's preparing and about the pandemic, short staffing, and ensuring inmates are ready for release. Going to prison can make you more like a criminal. And so humanizing and making prisons a place of purpose and not the place to punish people is a better approach. Then how child care can lead to bankruptcy. In total, she ended up spending 30000 a year in child care costs. And the work of Indigenous artists at the Museum of Contemporary Art. One of the artists says his early art reflects his upbringing in the Southwest. The brightness of the hues and this kind of sun-drenched landscape is really what I think I was drawn to. Your membership does more than fund the news and music you rely on. It helps build a statewide community through shared experiences. Your gift means culture can be explored. It means stories can be told from the Western Slope, the Eastern Plains, and from up and down the Front Range. CPR can serve your community and other communities across Colorado because of your support. Thank you. Not a member yet? Join now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. The number of people in Colorado prisons has dropped significantly over the last decade or so, but an uptick in crime and violence could change that. Let's check in with Dean Williams. He's been the head of the Colorado Department of Corrections for more than three years. Dean Williams, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you again. Uh, Thanks for having me back. CPR has been tracking the rise in crime in Colorado. Murders are up 47 percent, auto theft up a crazy 86 percent. What are you doing to prepare for potentially more people being sent to prison? Well, I mean, the prison system has ebbs and flows in population. And we saw certainly, I guess, what we would call an ebb uh, during the pandemic. We saw numbers going down dramatically. Really, for us, we look at what forecasts are going to do and sort of try to plan around that. But we also know that forecasts have limitations. Um, and we certainly experienced that, of course, as a result of the pandemic when we had lost quite a number of your beds taken offline in our budget. So we try to stay nimble and we plan and we look at what will happen based upon what the cards are dealt to us. And more people were released during the pandemic to take pressure off the system. Is that right? Well, a very limited number. Um, So I want to be really clear about this. Other states had more aggressive releases during the pandemic. We did not. We did have some, but those were people who were facing very close release, who had great medical vulnerabilities. They were generally old, you know, a lot of older people or chronic health conditions. This rise in crime has people calling for tougher penalties, in particular for drug crimes. Uh, I think in In 2019, the legislature reduced penalties for possession of smaller amounts of certain drugs. Now there's a push toward tougher punishments. What are the projections saying now about the future of the prison population? Well, I mean, without even taking into account what changes in laws or policies might occur in terms of sentencing, right? Because that's been a moving target. And I've looked at several of the bills that are in play, and those are policy calls. 
I provide input, but whatever those policy calls are is what I'll deal with. But even removing any changes in the laws or sentencing structures, we do anticipate, based upon what we see, an increase in the prison population. And what kind of an effect does that have on the prison budget? Well, it's, I mean, it's going to drive it, likely drive it north. Our budget has been reduced during the course of the pandemic because we had surplus and had some vacancies. I think wisely, the administration and I sort of advanced a, hey, let's be nimble and keep sort of facilities and operation mode to add these additional beds back on. So it'll be a little bit easier. Depends on how fast and how far a north bed populations go. Let's talk a bit about recidivism, the recidivism rate, uh, that is the number of people going back to prison within three years of being released, has hovered around 50 percent for many years. Obviously, the goal is to keep people out. What are you doing to try to keep people from coming back to prison? Well, I love this question. And the good news is, is that we haven't released our annual report yet around recidivism, but some of the initial data that I'm seeing is looking encouraging. So that's about all I can say right now. And so I, I'm hoping that as that report becomes finalized, it will reflect that. I, I think it will, but I'm encouraged by what I'm seeing so far. So that's a bit of good news. This has been the, the troubling and the persistent problem in not only Colorado, but other states. Even my old state I came for had the sort of dubious distinction of having the highest recidivism rate. Alaska. Alaska, right. It came at one of the highest rates in the country. The pandemic has, for two years, has uh, thrown everyone a bit of a curve. Part of the problem with incarceration when people get incarcerated is when they get released is that if you don't have a home, job, money, purpose, going back to prison is not as bad as it would be for you and me or the average person. So I've really focused a lot towards the end of someone's incarceration on jobs programming and on work release. I have two really good pilot sites going in both Buena Vista and Delta. These guys are, you know, working in the community, making prevailing wage jobs. They come back to the prison at night. They're monitored. They're on electronic monitoring. You know, we have a few hiccups with a few incidents here and there. But overall, we have seen really good success with this program. And here's the other thing is the employers who have a hard time finding employees. Uh, these are highly motivated individuals. The trick here is, is doing reentry better, doing it differently and having jobs, a place to live and money in your pocket and things like that. Your chances of staying out are dramatically increased. And we know that from research and we know it from looking at other states and other countries who have done this work as well. So uh, I think we're really on first base right now um, with that effort. And uh, I get strong support from the legislature around this. I've explained it, why we're doing it that way. On both sides, left and right, if you will, it's also the reason why I believe you have to normalize and humanize prisons, because going to prison can make you more like a criminal. And so humanizing and making prisons a place of purpose and intention and not the place to punish people is a better approach. We don't need prison to be more traumatic than it already is. It's already it's already a tough place. And the side benefit is that it makes it a better place to work for my staff. 
A new law just signed by the governor, I understand, means that people who take part in these day release programs will be paid at minimum wage. That's far more than most people working in prisons earn. What about other people who are incarcerated and the jobs they do? What are the average wages, and do you think they should be paid more, and is there an effort to ensure that they'll be paid more? So there's two areas. One, this bill, Senate Bill 50, which is what you're referring to, does not change. It encourages philosophically that, and it also sets an expectation, which I totally agree with, that if you're an inmate and you're working for a private employer and you're going to that job site, that employer should, in fact, pay you minimum wage like everybody else gets paid, or at least minimum wage, if not more. And some are making more, which is good. It doesn't change prison labor in terms of the people who work in the kitchen or work, you know, in housekeeping or work in these other jobs, right? And they're not making minimum wage. And I realize this has been the debate of some advocacy groups who have been concerned that, hey, you're not paying minimum wage for what is prison labor to help run the prison. And here's my response to that. I understand that I think it's generally a good idea for certainly people who are in prison to make money, to pay off their restitution, to save money, but we're not paying them minimum wage. And I don't find a conflict with that because in the same way that you and I sort of work in our, our homes and do our housekeeping and do our kitchen stuff, I expect people who are in a custody to do that stuff as well. So they don't get paid very much. They get paid a couple dollars or two or three or four dollars a day, which is not a lot of money. I don't find a conflict of expecting people who are in custody to do routine sort of household work of what we would do in our own homes. And I expect them to do that in prison as well. You know, I would like for them to get a little bit more money. I mean, uh, uh, clearly, and I've tried to advance that where I can. But when it comes to sort of standard housekeeping chores and things like that, I think that's part of the duty, if you will, of living there. So I want to talk about a class action lawsuit filed by a group of Colorado inmates. Um, They say the department violated the state's anti-slavery law by forcing them to work. One inmate says he was penalized for refusing to work in the kitchen when he was sick with COVID. What's your take on these complaints? Well, I want to to be really careful here. I'm not trying to dodge your question. It's just that I think that's still open litigation with us. And I I want to be careful about my comments. Let me just say this. I don't view it the way they view it. And so this will probably be argued out. I'll I'll make a more general overarching comment, though. We're far from a perfect system here. I mean, I don't know any perfect system that exists in this country in terms of correctional systems. But I have been very aggressive around increasing pay wherever and whenever I can. Even in correctional industries, I've gone back and renegotiated contracts with those private employers that are hiring them through our correctional industries program. So sort of the irony for me in in facing a lawsuit like this is that I think I have been the most, one of the more aggressive people in the country around fair wages for the inmate population, um, because I think it's important for people to have money when they get out of prison so they don't come back to prison. Certainly, these have been unprecedented times with the pandemic, and there's also been a staffing shortage within the DOC. What does that look like day to day? 
Well, one thing that's been day to day is that I've have staff working in some locations too many hours. We have forced overtime in situations. Our vacancy rate and our turnover rate is starting to go back up again post pandemic. I think this has happened everywhere in the country, by the way. Um, but it doesn't make it any easier for me to, to know that. The reality is the pandemic put a lot of stressors on the system and on the staffing, particularly. And so I have a lot of concern around that. And I'm doing all I can to advance dealing with the staffing issue. But I think it's going to be one that's going to be with us for a while. How do you find more people who want to work in prisons? Well, one is, is that the whole point of humanizing and normalizing prisons and making them less traumatic for the people who live there is also to make it less traumatic and difficult for the people who work there. And so people who didn't consider that they wanted to maybe be a correctional officer or a teacher in a prison or, or a medical person in a prison, they go, hey, this, that system is changing and we are changing. But the second thing is, is the pay issue. So I advocate where I can. These are decisions that are not in my control entirely, but I advocate that we have to have decent paying jobs in the correctional system. And neighboring states are um, going after this. And some of the neighboring states had some pretty low pays at one particular time, but they have woken up in a big way. And so um, they're increasing their pay and they're offering signing bonuses and even referral bonuses. And so those are the uh, issues that I advocate for in terms of pay for our staff. I want to ask you about private prisons. I read an op-ed by Boulder District Attorney Michael Doherty in the Colorado Sun, and he argued that the state should abolish private prisons. He says they operate on the cheap, produce worse results than state-run prisons, and they're just after profits. Could you envision the state moving away from its use of private prisons entirely? Well, I would say this. I don't view them as the enemy. And here's why. We asked for them to have those bed spaces, right? I mean, we as in the government. And when I talk to my colleagues around the country, we have more private prisons, right, than we do. We have two now. And so if we want to not have them, and that's the policy call, I certainly would advocate there's a vulnerability of having private prisons in that they can decide not to operate them. They can give me notice, uh, I think it's two or three months, and they can decide they don't want to do business. And that's just part of the contract. And right now, today, I need those beds. So if we're going to not have them, the only thing I have advocated for is that there must be a plan. And if we're going to have a different course, then that means replacing them because I don't, I don't have capacity to replace all those beds with where we're at right now. You gave your blessing to a recently launched prison-wide radio station. We did a story on it. Tell us about something you heard on the station that struck you. Oh, man, I, I not only gave them my blessing for it, I was cheering on the side. And I, I mean, I mean, I personally have been impacted by what I've been hearing. And to be clear for listeners to understand, this is the first radio station in the world produced on the inside, broadcast to the outside that we can all listen to. I challenge the producers, in other words, the inmates who are leading this radio station to say, look, um, you guys, this is a small baby we're holding. And I don't want any gaffes. I don't want anything weird or ill uh, thought out 
or blaming or war stories or anything to come out of this radio station that would be an embarrassment to us, to us, meaning not only the staff, the people who work here, but to you as the resident inmate population. And are you with me in terms of the value and how it could change us and how it could change you and change people's perception of people in prison? So they, they play music and all kinds of eclectic music and they have different shows and health sort of spots, but they also interview each other and have difficult conversations around difficult topics. I heard an interview recently, I think it was a rebroadcast of our podcast, because we have a podcast as well, of an African-American inmate interviewing a white inmate talking around race issues, uh, talking around Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, and the sensitivity of how, how does humanity break out when people are positioned in certain places and they how do they see each other and how do we have biases, implicit biases we don't even know about what we think about other people of who, you know, think Black Lives Matter is great or think Black Lives Matter is terrible. And what are we talking about when we form opinions? You know, those are difficult conversations for any of us to have. And they have been offering some real sensitive and gentle conversations with each other around this issue. And um, I don't know about you, but anytime we can have a gentle conversation around really hard topics and try to find a common ground. I mean, there's some knuckleheads and people that probably need to stay in prison a long time, but there's a lot of people behind the walls who are looking for redemption from a, a very bad mistake and harm that they hurt and caused others. And they're talking that way. That encourages me. That encourages me a lot. I know there are a lot of difficult jobs out there, but it strikes me that leading a corrections department is among the most challenging. And I just wonder what attracts you to the job. Well, I don't think anyone takes this job. And by the way, there are really a lot of hard jobs. And I go through, I walk through prisons a lot and talk about hard jobs, a lot of hard jobs with the people who work in this department, who go to work every day during the middle of a pandemic, go into a prison where there's two or 300, 400 men or women who are positive of COVID-19 and the staff showed up to work every day. So those are the hard jobs. And so I think mine's difficult, but at times, but I mean, I love this department and I love this staff that have a heart of duty and service to others. And I don't know a greater calling. I mean, I, I just think sometimes it's forgotten sometimes. And that makes me a little bit sad that people understand it. And sometimes I don't sleep as well as I'd like to. But I also feel more blessed and burdened because I know that uh, I've been given a mission. And as a man of faith, I I don't think there's a lot of accidents and those kind of things. And so that's the way I've approached the last three years here in Colorado. Dean Williams, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. Dean Williams is the head of the Colorado Department of Corrections. To hear the statewide radio station Inside Wire, go to coloradoprisonradio.com. There's also an app. Search for Inside Wire. When we come back, the high cost of child care adds up to a big financial burden and a lot of anxiety. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. We recorded an episode of Colorado Matters at the Denver Women's Correctional Facility, interviewing two women who are incarcerated and who are learning to make radio 
you can either wake up in the morning and go to your job of cleaning toilets and then go back to bed and that's your life. Like yeah. it's a choice, right? Or you can choose to push yourself. We ask questions of them. They also ask questions of us. I'm Elaine Tassie. And I'm Ryan Warner. Listen everywhere you get podcasts. Wait lists that are years long, costs that can rival a second mortgage. Childcare centers are struggling to meet the need, and parents are left in the lurch. A recent report found about 60% of childcare centers in Colorado are having trouble retaining staff. Some have shut down classes or closed altogether. Denverite's Kyle Harris has been working on a special series. It looks at the situation through the lens of what's happening in Metro Denver. Kyle, welcome. Hi, Andrea. Let's take a look at this beyond the statistics. You met a woman named Sylvia Johnston. Tell us about her experience. Well, Sylvia is a single mom. She runs her own accounting company. And while she had planned to have 12 weeks of paid time off, she had set aside the money for that. She had complications during her pregnancy, and she wound up running out of money. She went through a series of nannies early on who proved to be really unreliable. She got on wait lists for child care centers. Some of those ended up lasting for several years, so she's still on the wait list, even though her kid is now around two. She finally got into one of those centers um, that had just been opened, which felt like a blessing to her until she found out that the child care center was closing so often that she wasn't able to keep up with her work and wasn't able to meet uh, client expectations. So that was because of COVID closures, because the kids got sick. And after missing so much work, after having to take so much time off, she ended up having to declare bankruptcy. And her company is really struggling. So in total, with the child care center, which was around $20,000 a year and $10,000 in backup care, she ended up spending $30,000 a year in child care costs. That's a college education there. That's a college education. I mentioned childcare centers have struggled with keeping staff. You found that's a chronic problem. Absolutely. So the industry itself has depended on paying teachers way less than they're worth in order to keep functioning because they're running on a really slim profit margin. The teachers are getting paid close to minimum wage. So that's according to Liliana Flores Amaro, who teaches early childhood education at the University of Colorado, Denver, and she's worked in the field since 2010. She says that many parents can't afford to pay more in tuition to increase teacher pay, and that's something we heard from a ton of teachers as well. The state is behind in what it needs to do to make childcare more accessible. That's according to the Bell Policy Center. Colorado is facing $500 million in unmet funding needs starting in 2023, and if childcare providers were actually paid living wages, that number would go up to $1.17 billion. Wow. Here's Kelly Bowes, Director of Career Pathways at Denver's Early Childhood Council. Early childhood is very complex, you know, where the K-12 education system has more of a dedicated funding stream and, you know, the brick and mortar schools that we all are familiar with. And in early childhood, things are more fragmented. Parents often use daycare center as a universal term for places that watch infants and very young kids. But it's more complex than that, right? Oh, it's way more complex than that. And this is a real sticking point with some of the the teachers. So early childhood educators say um, the term daycare makes them sound like babysitters. And they prefer terms like child care center or at-home child care. And they like to be uh, framed as educators rather than essentially babysitters. Then there's the ubiquitous preschool, which is a term that covers education for three or four-year-olds, but people use it to explain everything. Public funding for preschool is typically more abundant than it is for early childhood centers. Hmm. The state legislature passed universal preschool for children ages four and older starting in 2023. 
That program covers 10 hours a week of childcare. So again, not a full-time schedule. Head Start programs often provide excellent early education for children who qualify, but eligible families must make 23030 or less. So options for education for three- or four-year-olds, but it's still not great. Exactly. There are some options. It's not great for, for families who are not making that much money, but you know, but making some, they're, they're struggling, right? They're struggling to pay. One way of looking at this is a family that is qualifying for like affordable housing, they may not be able to qualify for affordable childcare. So they're paying the full range. Which they need to go to work. Which they need to go to work. For your series, Denverite spoke with parents, early childhood educators, advocates, and child care center directors. They all agreed working families are struggling to find and pay for quality child care. And the pandemic did not help things. The pandemic really wrecked things. So even if families can afford tuition, the care itself is often unreliable, leaving young parents scrambling to meet their commitments at work. So all of this has gotten worse during the pandemic. Shortly after COVID-19 came to Denver, child care centers shut down and 10% never reopened. That's according to the Bell Policy Center. Have you spoken to any child care workers? I have. Shanique Wells has been teaching in early childhood in ECE for 20 years, and she's also had two kids of her own. After two decades in the field, she's being paid $22 an hour and works in a before and after care program, which splits up her day. Teachers have steep training requirements. They're expensive. And some of those leave leave teachers in debt. You also found that for parents who do get their children into a child care center, the costs are really burdensome. We talked about that a little bit, even for those making well over the median income. Exactly. Yeah. The, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services considers families cost burdened by child care if it costs more than 7 percent of their monthly income. Most Colorado families are spending between 16% and 27% of their income on child care, according to the Bell Policy Center. Colorado is in the top 10 least affordable states for child care. Center-based infant care costs 44% more than tuition for a year at a public college, according to the report. Here's Elsa Holguin, head of the Denver Preschool Program. The cost is pretty high. Yeah. You know, the average in Denver is $14,000 a year, and that's for preschool. Yeah. Um, as you go to younger children, it gets even more expensive because the ratios of how many adults to children you can have in a classroom is a much higher number of adults to children. And so it gets much more expensive. So what do working parents who can't find or afford a child care center do? Well, around 40% of Colorado families rely on relatives, friends, or neighbors to watch their children, according to the Bell Policy Center. Sometimes those caretakers are skilled and competent and have been doing this in the community for a long time. Other times they are the only option available. Here's Liliana Flores Amaro. My dad helps out on his day off of work uh, during the week, and then my mom helps another two and a half days of the week. And um, And there are definitely times of the week where I don't have coverage, so I just you know, I just have to figure out my schedule and work evenings or work weekends or work nights or early mornings to try and get everything that I need done. So this sounds like it adds so much stress trying to cobble together care for her kid. Um, for people moving to Denver, it can bring its own unique set of challenges. 
Yes. So transplants who left their homes elsewhere to raise their family in Denver often just don't have a social network here that they can tap for care. Here's Beatrice Sherman, who spent up to $195 just to get her six-month-old on a wait list in 2019. A lot of people are transplants. So a lot of people don't yep. have family. You know, everyone wants to move here and be independent. But they, I've definitely had a bunch of friends who've left because of the lack of childcare and lack of social supports. What are the solutions folks are talking about? The sad answer to that question is, immediately speaking, people are going to be cobbling solutions together. Every person I spoke to wants to see public support for childcare solutions. Many are looking to European countries with more paid family leave in the first year and subsidized or fully funded childcare for older children. Childcare funding was also part of the Build Back Better plan, but that has been postponed. There's still some indication Biden wants to see that go through. And are these possible solutions going to be part of your special series? Yes, they are. We're going to be looking at possible solutions. We're going to be looking at more stories of parents, of child care workers. We're going to be looking at how families are figuring out how to cobble it together right now and, and the kind of structures they're leaning on, whether it be community support or family. Well, we look forward to hearing it. And Kyle, thanks for sharing your reporting. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Kyle Harris, read a special report on Denver's child care crisis at denverite.com. We'll also link to it in the Colorado Matters podcast at CPR.org. For years, Colorado schools have received a fraction of what it actually costs to teach students with disabilities. So schools made cuts in other areas to give students their federally mandated services. Now state lawmakers are on the cusp of giving more money to students with special needs. Here's CPR's education reporter Jenny Brundine. Senator Rachel Zenzinger was sitting in a budget committee meeting one day. It was 2019. She heard something that sent her on a mission. I was shocked. I could not believe that we were not fully funding it. It is special education. The state gives school districts extra money for students with special needs, about 12 percent of kids in public schools. It can be anything from a mild learning disability, those students get an extra $1,200, to students who are blind. They're supposed to get an extra $6,000. We were only distributing 31 percent of that amount. Those reimbursement rates were set in 2006. They haven't budged since then despite years of rising costs. Zenzinger has worked to get more money into special education, and this year may be the biggest infusion yet. We'll learn in a minute why Colorado's in this situation and why the new money may still not be enough. But first... When do we do a CK? At the beginning of a word or the end of a word? At the end, so it's not a CK. To understand why this new money is so critical, talk to any special educator. This is going to be vid... Not vit, vid. Special educator okay. Jen Holtzman is helping a student with reading. She loves her job, but... My current caseload feels overwhelming. By law, Holtzman must provide each of her 20 students a set number of minutes of service each week. There are three students at her school who need one-to-one -one support, a special aid at their side at all times. Holtzman lost two of those paraprofessionals before spring break. She's now down to one. Finding a person who is qualified or capable or has the patience or comes already with the skills is incredibly challenging. Paraprofessionals aren't paid well. Holtzman says they also need more intensive training from the district. 
she'd like to train them. But I can't, right? I have to teach. I have to plan. I have to do IEP meetings. I have to evaluate students. I have to write assessments. Why has special education in Colorado, in particular, been so chronically underfunded? Listen up. The federal law on students with disabilities went into effect in 1975. With the promise of up to 40 percent of federal funds to local states. We've never had more than 17 percent. Lucinda Hundley says the feds never came through with the 40 percent of the cost. She heads up the Colorado Consortium of Directors of Special Education. Hundley says it then fell on states to fund children with disabilities. But what happened when the state didn't come through? School districts across the United States are required to provide the necessary supports for these children regardless of cost. Because the state only funds 23 percent of the cost of special education students, school districts have to make up the rest, even if it means cutting programs like music or delaying raises to make it happen. I think one of the most compelling reasons to pass this bill is that you will never have to hear me talk about special education funding again. (laughs) This year, lawmakers are set to pump a historic $80 million more into special ed to account for 16 years of inflation. For students with more needs, they'd get about 75% of what they're supposed to. Here's DPS special educator Jen Holtzman. If we were to get more money in special education, then my principal wouldn't have to think about cutting things like dance or art or not just have a STEM cart, but maybe have a person that could come in and teach from that STEM cart. Holtzman says it's hard for her to imagine funding has not really increased since 2006. Like 2006, that's the year I graduated high school. So I've been teaching in this deficit as long as I've known. So I Would that mean another half-time special ed teacher? That would be nice. Special educators statewide are taking a wait-and-see approach, nervous the money will be used to shore up places in school budgets that were cut to fund special ed. In Denver, educators want a seat at the table for how those funds should be spent. Bilingual speech therapist Michelle Horwitz says she worries about the decisions school leaders will face. Do I keep music? Do I staff special education to the full extent that I know is necessary? Or do I staff it at half knowing that my special educator has always made it work because they've had to? She says many special educators, exhausted, are at the point they can't do that anymore. I'm Jenny Brendine, Colorado Public Radio News. When we come back, working to ensure a dark moment in Denver history is no longer misrepresented. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. On one side of the looking glass, Colorado is a national model for how to run elections. On the other, it's ground zero for some of the most potent election conspiracy theories out there. It was actually Tina that talked me out of a hand count. She's the one that said we could actually trust our elections. So how she got from there to here, I will never know. How one clerk's journey to election denialism is challenging the whole system in the latest episode of the CPR politics podcast, Purplish, everywhere you listen. On Saturday, the city of Denver will apologize to early Chinese immigrants and their descendants for an anti-Chinese riot in 1880. A Chinese man was lynched. The riot also led to the destruction of the city's Chinatown. It's in the Denver neighborhood now known as Lodo. Denver will be the fifth city in the U.S. to issue this kind of apology. 
There's a plaque marking the riot, but critics say it whitewashes the history. A group called Colorado Asian Pacific United wants it replaced. Shauna Medeiros, Twila Epa, and Joey Ha are board members. They spoke with Ryan Warner in June. So the plaque's about eight sentences, and it's titled Hop Alley, Chinese Riot of 1880. Shauna, what about that framing concerns you? First of all, Hop Alley is a derogatory term that refers to the opium dens that were in the area at the time. And it insinuates that the Chinese community of the time were just, quote unquote, hopped up on opium as if they were the only ones that were using a lot of the other um, individuals in the area of white um, individuals as well would seek refuge in these opium dens as well. And so we feel that is a derogatory term to refer to it as Hop Alley. Also, the plaque says Chinese race riot, which doesn't differentiate that it was actually an anti-Chinese race riot. Um, it kind of leads the reader to believe that this was started by the Chinese community, whereas it's quite the opposite. Yeah. And the text of the plaque goes even further into the opium dens. It seems to place them rather prominently in the story. And you think that's emphasizing the wrong thing, I think I hear you saying, Shauna. Yes, we believe so. I mean, obviously, there were some opium dens there, but the Chinese community, I mean, is part of the history and the culture and not not abused, typically. And so it's just insinuating that others in the area weren't using as well. And so it paints a very negative picture um, on the Chinese community of the time. And I know that uh, you both think the plaque focuses on the incidents of 1880 through a kind of white savior lens. Uh, Maybe, Joy, you can tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So a white savior um, story focuses a lot on the people that were Caucasian. So it's not to say that there weren't any folks that stood up against this horrific event. It is to say, however, that the focus is largely on these folks. There is no mention of what the Chinatown was like at the time, what had happened in terms of the perspective of a Chinese person. And it really just has the story seem um, whitewashed, as you mentioned earlier, that it shows this perspective of a benevolent um, one or two white people that had attempted to help, as opposed to saying there was a bustling Chinatown these Chinese people had these types of occupations and lives and which were disturbed and ruined by the anti-Chinese race riot. You mentioned that this was fueled by anti-Chinese sentiment. And we reached out to CU Boulder historian William Wei. He's the author of Asians in Colorado. And he expounded for us on that hatred at the time. For a while, there had been developing in Denver and across the state an anti-Chinese sentiment. This sentiment was referred to nationally as the Chinese question, which revolved around the issue of whether more Chinese should be allowed to immigrate to the country, where, by the way, they had contributed significantly to the development of the infrastructure of the nation. And many of the rioters, like those around the state and the country, felt threatened by the Chinese. They felt threatened by Chinese economically as well as socially. And so that perception 
of the other as a threat is key to this story. I wonder uh, for you, Shauna, if that sentiment still resonates today. Absolutely. I think we're seeing it a lot, um, given the hateful rhetoric that has been built over the last four or five years. We're seeing um, a lot of folks are calling it an uptick in anti-Asian violence and, and hate crimes. But in all honesty, this is a history that has been around since the beginning and seen throughout other communities of color. And so for the anti-Asian um, hate that's going on right now, this has been going on for a long time. Joy, do you want to share a few words on the idea of the relevance of this history today? Absolutely. Um, Like Shana was mentioning, there has been a large increase in anti-Asian hate, and it basically goes to show that things haven't changed as much as we would have liked since that race riot in 1880. Although we'd like to say that we've made progress, we're becoming a more equal society, and in some ways, yes. But the fact of the matter is there are a lot of things that have been happening since we arrived here. And additionally, it goes to show how fear really serves as a vehicle for hate. Mm. So previously um, in 1880 and prior, there was the fear that Chinese individuals were taking over the economy. They were threatening the fabric of what it meant to be American, despite the fact that um, a lot of them had came over and lived here their entire lives and, you know, were American in several senses. After the riot in 1880, Denver's Chinatown was rebuilt, but the targeting continued, including from the federal government, uh, says historian William Wei. They uh, rebuilt the community, but the community could not sustain itself, mainly because soon after the anti-Chinese riot, the federal government had enacted the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882, which excluded Chinese laborers from entering the country, which means that the numbers of Chinese were going to decline since there wasn't going to be an influx of more Chinese to augment the population. And so that painful history continued beyond the riot. You know, it's quite informal what I'm about to share, but I was asking friends prior to this segment if they'd heard of the 1880 anti-Chinese riot in Denver, and I'd say that the bulk of them had not. I'm curious if either of you learned about this event in school yourselves. Shauna? Most definitely not. And honestly, um, I'm going to show my ignorance here as well. I didn't know about this until a group of us met at the plaque and with uh, William Way there uh, shared the history. And and that's when me personally, I I learned more about it. This is definitely uh, another example of of racism by erasure. And it is an important history to, to know. And that's why we feel that the Denver community and Colorado uh, needs to know that that this history happened so that we can properly honor and celebrate the Chinese community of today. Joy, did you learn about this in school? Absolutely not. not there not. were a lot of things about Asian history or Asian American history, I should say, that were not taught in school and I had to actually seek out myself. And specifically to um, the anti-Chinese race riot in Denver, I only learned about this a few years ago. So um, even compared to Shana, it was uh, just a few years earlier, really not that much earlier. And um, I think 
for us learning about it, we saw that there was a huge need to educate the public on, you know, what used to exist here and that, um, you know, the influx of Chinese immigrants isn't a recent thing. We've been here for, you know, quite a bit of time. And I think it really goes to show that even though there are so many different communities of color, different minorities and um, folks of different identities that exist in America that are American, their histories are not taught, right? Because Chinese American history is still American history. Um, however, that is not something that uh, we commonly understand. And even now, when we look at Lodo, there is no sign that a Chinatown existed. There's no way that you would know other than reading that very small plaque, mm. um, which in itself is um, problematic, like we mentioned earlier. Joey Ha and Shauna Madero's Twila Epa are with Colorado Asian Pacific United. They spoke with Ryan Warner in June. On Saturday, Denver will apologize for the anti-Chinese riots of 1880. When we come back, rethinking the meaning of American art. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Every spring, as the snow melts, an angel emerges on a mountainside in the San Isabel National Forest. That's what some see in the large snowfield on the eastern face of Mount Chavano, a kneeling angel, wings outstretched. Some Native American legends say she was a princess who sacrificed herself to end a harsh drought, who comes back every year as the Angel of Chavano. As the angel melts in the summer heat, her tears flow down to the valley as life-giving water. Mount Chavano rises above Salida, just east of the Continental Divide. Named for a Ute war chief, it's the southernmost 14er in the Sawatch Range. At the northern end of that mountain range is another 14er, Mount of the Holy Cross, named for the shape of its snowfield. An angel and a cross in the heart of the Colorado Rockies. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio, with support from Sheets and Giggles. Rethinking What American Art Means is the theme of two exhibitions at Denver's Museum of Contemporary Art. The artists Diani Whitehawk and Eamon Orejiron draw a lot from their indigenous heritage. I had a chance to visit and talk with one of the artists just before the opening. My name is Eamon Orejiron. I live in Los Angeles, and I have been an artist for the past 30-odd years. Among the first paintings you see is one of Orejiron's earlier works and reflects his upbringing in the American Southwest. It's a brightly colored painting of a pickup truck parked at the edge of a gate with a sign that reads simply, Cemetery. I imagine this truck as almost like the truck that would take you into the afterlife. It's very much kind of reflective of like a, a Western style, you know, the cemetery in the background is actually from like a Western cemetery. And the truck, I, to me, it was like this idea of the truck functioning as this almost like a metaphysical object. The truck is a striking pink and blue. The sky is a pale blue and the foreground is light pink. I'm from Tucson, Arizona, and the hues, the brightness of the hues and this kind of sun-drenched kind of landscape is really what I think I was drawn to by using the color pink and the blue and, and that kind of relationship where they kind of vibrate against one another. Another of his earlier works are two paintings next to each other. Each shows two women cooking, in one indigenous women, in the other white women. 
I was really interested in bridging these two places, um, Peru, where half of my family is from, and the United States. And what they're doing is they're making umitas, which is similar to a Mexican tamale. And it was a way to kind of hold them in reverence and to kind of depict them in this almost supernatural way where they start to kind of imbue a landscape. You know, their heads start to turn into almost like mountaintops. Um, and my aunt is wearing a sweater that kind of turns into the skeleton of a choya cactus. In terms of them being a diptych, I was interested in this idea of playing with, with identity and not about any kind of trying to figure anything out, but actually feeling very like grounded in both identities. And so in one of them, they're depicted as they are, as indigenous brown women. And in the other one, I kind of thought, okay, I'll take flesh tint paint and make whatever that default flesh tint that people have deemed flesh. And I changed their hair into these, you know, bright blonde colors as a way to kind of comment on, on that, that dual identity. Orejeron's father is Peruvian and his mother is of Irish-American descent. Over time, his work becomes progressively more abstract. The artist's Infinite Regress series are paintings on linen featuring geometric shapes and the prominent use of gold paint. I have been working with gold paint since this series began. And initially, it was a formal experiment. And it evolved into kind of the symbolic significance that gold has, this deep-rooted relationship with the history of Latin America and um, the origins of Peruvian abstraction and abstraction in the Americas. Perhaps the most striking space in the exhibition is the second gallery. It includes paintings of brightly colored geometric shapes featuring mysterious deities. It is a painting depicting the goddess Cuatlicue, the Aztec goddess. And it, in a lot of ways, was a conversation with the forms of Cuatlicue that um, are very prominent in, in the Mexican folklore. Cuatlicue um, literally translates to serpent skirt, and she has a skirt made of serpent. And she is kind of like the mother to all, all people. Along with his work, the museum is featuring works by Diani Whitehawk, another indigenous artist. Whitehawk draws heavily on her Lakota heritage. She translates the tradition of porcupine quill work, typically used to make garments and other objects, into enormous paintings made up of many, many tiny strokes. The curator, Miranda Lash, says having the two artists together was intentional. So between Diani Whitehawk's work and Eamon Orejiron's work, you have two artists working in geometric abstraction that draws very specifically from indigenous sources of inspiration. In Diani's case, from Lakota forms of inspiration, and in Eamon's case, looking at traditions from Peru to Mexico and throughout Central America. We wanted, through these two exhibitions, to rethink how we define American art and American 
American abstraction and very specifically artistic languages that are from this land but may not be the type of visual language we typically associate with art history and American art history, or maybe I should say until now. The two exhibitions run through May 22nd at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Denver. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Andrea Dukakis, and this is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.